Welcome to Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast with your host, Steve Shulwolf. Thanks, Phil. This is Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. I'm your host, Steve Shulwolf, and today we're going to talk about a couple of things. First, environmental insurance coverage litigation, and second, the use of experts in complex litigation. So wait a minute. I thought I said that this was a mediation podcast. Well, it is, but we're going to look at mediation from different perspectives. In episode one, we were in the land of Lincoln, Kane County, and we spoke with the Honorable Judge Clint Hull. And Judge Hull told us, from a judge's perspective, how a judge looks at both mediators and mediation. He talked about the fact that mediation successfully allows judges to streamline their docket, and that mediators have a different goal and purpose than a judge. A judge calls balls and strikes and can only resolve the issues presented to him by the parties, where a mediator has the opportunity during settlement conferences to try to change the vantage point of both parties so that they can move closer towards a compromise and resolution. So what is environmental insurance coverage litigation? Well, other than being a mouthful, It's what I spent the most of my 25 years litigating doing. And what I found is when people ask you what you do and you told them you were an attorney, they wanted to know, well, what kind of attorney were you? And so when I answered environmental insurance coverage litigation, that kind of got a quizzical look. And so as many attorneys do, I develop a habit. When people ask me, well, what type of attorney are you? Instead of answering the question, I posed a different question back to the person who asked. And I would say, have you ever seen the movie Aaron Brockovich? And everybody has seen the movie Aaron Brockovich. So people nod their heads. And as they're nodding, thinking that they now know what I do, I say, no, I don't, I don't do that. So they look at me and I say, well, when they roll the credits, After the movie of Aaron Brockovich, there is a very unknown sequel that nobody saw to Aaron Brockovich, which involved after Aaron Brockovich got the manufacturing facility to be liable for poisoning the the water in Massachusetts, there invariably was a second act, which was the manufacturer versus its insurance companies for who actually paid to clean up the mess. And that's where I became involved. So that's insurance coverage litigation. And insurance coverage is a unique niche in the law. There's an act called the McCarran-Ferguson Act, which means that insurance law is state law. And so what that means is an identical insurance contract with the same words applied to the identical facts can mean something different in Texas than it does in Illinois. And that has an impact on how these cases are both litigated and potentially resolved. Because if the difference between potential jurisdictions is great, then you'll have what's called a race to the courthouse. So it means these are the type of cases that sometimes it has nothing to do with the parties being intransigent. Sometimes these cases can't be resolved before somebody files suit. 
And once somebody files suit, then these cases tend to take on a life of their own. Sometimes parties file thinking that maybe we'll get the other side's attention and they'll go come to the table. The other side might be mad that they lost the race to the courthouse and therefore make the other side go through discovery and experience some of the pain of the decision to come to the courthouse first instead of negotiate. And so that's always a matter that impacts how both environmental insurance coverage litigation is is litigated and how it's ultimately resolved. But another aspect of environmental insurance coverage litigation is it really can be somewhat of an Alice in Wonderland type of world because certain things that frankly aren't important in the real world become tremendously important when it comes to insurance coverage. So if the average person sees a dump site and they look at it and they understand that it needs to be cleaned up, the questions that they ask are very practical questions. You know, what needs to be done? What work needs to be done? How much is it going to cost? And and when can we start? From an insurance coverage perspective, other questions become extremely important. When did the contamination begin? And there's two types of insurance, first-party insurance and third-party insurance. So first-party insurance is your homeowner's insurance. You insure your house. If a tree falls on your house, you ask your insurer to fix the damage caused by the tree. You have first-party insurance for your auto, but you also have third-party liability insurance so that if you get into an accident, the bodily injury or property damage that you may or may not have caused during that accident is paid by your insurer. So going back to an environmental insurance coverage action, since it's liability insurance, usually what becomes an important aspect is when did a contaminant leave a particular boundary line and enter into a neighbor's property? And when exactly did that happen? Now, the reality is nobody really knows that for sure, but that's the type of issue that becomes extremely important. And because it's something that's difficult and involves extrapolation from data, it usually involves an expert. So one person I know who's familiar with environmental coverage litigation and environmental litigation in general is... John Loper. And John, thank you very much for being the guest here for our second podcast. So uh, your presence here is much appreciated. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for uh, inviting me. All right. And we're here in Houston. And I was smart enough, John, to leave so early this morning that it wasn't even unbearably hot when I got in my car and drove here from from Austin. But I'm sure by the time we leave It will be on your return trip. Okay, absolutely. We'll we'll have the AC cranked up on the return trip. But John is the uh, president and principal engineer of the Loper Group. He has 44 years of experience in environmental sciences. He has a master and degree in chemical engineering. He's a professional engineer in, I think it's nine or 10 states, including the great state of Texas. He's a certified safety professional, and he's been involved extensively in assisting companies cleaning up and devising ways to address environmental impacts 
I've known him through this Alice in Wonderland aspect of environmental insurance coverage litigation. But most of what John uh, has done, and John, you can uh, pipe in, has been how can we figure out how to address an environmental situation? Yeah, thank you, Steve. My first entree into the environmental world was when I was still employed by FMC Corporation right out of graduate school and uh, was moved from a variety of positions there in manufacturing, ultimately to a safety manager position in the chemical group, and then moved into sales and marketing, and then into commercial product development, and we developed a product for in-situ bioremediation. We We were peroxide manufacturers. We manufactured phosphates and the nutrients that are necessary, and we created a new business called Aquifer Remediation Systems. And uh, went to work for what was in a small regional consulting company, Rue Associates. Worked there from 1985 until 2002. So 2002, in the interim, I had moved, opened up an original office in New Jersey for Rue, then opened up an office in Houston for them, and then uh, went out on my own in 2002 as the Loper Group. Well, great. So I think we were chatting uh, before the podcast that we have somewhat similar bios in the sense that at one point we both were working for Rue became a large environmental consulting group. I started my career at a large law firm and then uh, ultimately we both uh, founded smaller uh, firms and went to business for ourselves. So that sounds like a great background. And, uh, you know, anytime here, feel free to jump in. But I'm going to steer us a little bit back towards some of the issues that come up in environmental insurance coverage litigation, just to give a little bit more flavor for anybody in the audience who doesn't have a great familiarity towards what it is. And I think the first place to start is that the insurance if you talk to insurers, and in full disclosure as a mediator, what I you know tell uh, anybody who uh, is considering using me is that you know I did represent insurers in environmental insurance coverage actions. I've also done plaintiff work, and so I understand how to be a plaintiff's attorney and a, a defense attorney. And and I don't believe that the fact that some of my experience with environmental coverage litigation is on the defense side disqualifies me uh, from being an unbiased neutral. But if you talk to insurers and policyholders, one of the first places to start on any dispute in the interpretation of an insurance contract invariably involves in what's called the pollution exclusion. And insurers will tell you, we never intended to provide coverage for any of this. And starting in the early 70s, I think in 1973, it became part of ISO, which was a standard form language. Insurers developed what became known as the sudden and accidental pollution exclusion. And what the sudden and accidental exclusion purports to do is to say that insurers are not going to pay for property damage arising out of the discharge, dispersal, release, or escape of smoke, vapors, soot, fumes, acids, alkalines, toxic chemicals, liquids or gases, waste materials, or other irritants, contaminants, or pollutants upon the land, the atmosphere, or any water. But there is an exception. And the exception is unless 
the discharge, dispersal, or escape is sudden and accidental. Now, insurers will go to their grave telling you that what they meant by that was a discrete event in time. If you are operating a manufacturing facility and there's an explosion at your plant or there's a rupture of one of your drainage pipes and that causes property damage, that is something abrupt in time and therefore it is sudden. And so what really is at issue in interpreting pollution exclusions is, is there insurance coverage for gradual pollution? pollution that took place over decades as part of a policyholder's manufacturing. So the first question that courts around the country had to look into was, does sudden have a temporal element? And many courts, like my home state in Illinois, answer in the negative. It does not. Now, I can tell you, John, that when lay people hear that, they usually raise their eyebrows. But what I tell people, I taught, I guess it's been 20 years ago, after I left Lord Bissell and Brooke, I taught at a law school in Bulgaria. And one of the classes that I taught was contracts, and I used the arguments that were made in a standard sudden accidental pollution exclusion case. And many of my students came up to me after class, and they said, you know, I thought my English was pretty good, but I obviously don't understand it as well as I thought because I thought sudden does have, you know, it meant what it said. Right, a temporal element. But if you read the briefs from a good policyholder, you can at least see where courts taking a look at the exclusion determine that really what was meant was something unexpected. And so in the jurisdictions that courts have read out a temporal element, then the question becomes, did the policyholder expect the pollution? In other words, was it an accident? And that then leads to numerous other type of side arguments. There are cases that are called secondary discharge cases. And the argument goes like this. Well, we as policyholders knew that our discharges contained certain concentrations of contaminants, but we put it into this particular structure or pond, and we felt that that was protecting the rest of the environment. So while we expected and intended to discharge pollutants into the pond, we had no idea that the pond at some point was not impervious and therefore would leach contaminants. And depending on the type of structure that we're talking about, different parties have the better of the argument about whether that makes sense. I see you smirking a little bit. I think one of the things that I have found in litigating that type of question that to me is pretty remarkable is the argument that somehow these sophisticated manufacturers who were involved in very complex chemical reactions to create a particular product somehow had no idea that a drainage pond would leak. And what I've seen, and I don't know whether you've seen this in, in your experience, is the argument becomes like somehow 
Well, that was back in the 60s and 70s, and people just didn't understand the risks posed to the environment based on certain practices. Many cases then turn on experts, sometimes industrial hygienists, who look over the historical record with the journals and talk about what industry knew and when. Have you had experience with that, John? Absolutely. It's an interesting dilemma because practices have changed over time. But they've changed frequently in response to regulatory permitting requirements that have also developed exponentially over time. And so it's a matter of going back then in some of the early release time periods and understanding what did the party really know or what should they have known based on what's readily available to them. And your open pond is a good example. If it's not a lined pond, it's going to leak. Now, just because it's out of sight doesn't mean it's out of mind because there's a whole subsurface that exists below the base of that pond. And so now I've got potential migration through the soil into groundwater and maybe into a supply well that's used by a local resident three blocks away or by a municipality a half a mile away. And so while, while they may want to represent that that was never intended, though they didn't intend to pollute the well, well, they did intend to release contaminants into an unlined pond that had no other place to go but that direction. And they had the knowledge. Clearly, the science has been around for a long time about what happens. Did you ever meet Ed Kleppinger? No, I haven't. Uh, Ed uh, used to uh, provide his services in, in litigation. He, unfortunately, has uh, passed away. But he used to look into historical record. And I think it uh, might have been a slight stretch, but he went all the way back to the Bible to demonstrate uh, <laughs> uh, how, how, how man understood the impact. I've not gone uh, back uh, Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you, you know, nobody can see a podcast, but you, you felt compelled to, to put your hand up uh, <laughs> when talking about the Bible. But uh, Ed was a character. Uh, and uh, so, but these are the types of issues that come up that require experts to testify. I think you just talked about if it's an unlined pit, then it becomes a little bit more complicated. I think if the the pit was lined with, you know, whether there was any liner put in, whether perhaps there was a study that demonstrated that they thought that there was clay and that it might be relatively impervious. And all of those things go into trying to answer a question of what a corporate entity did or didn't know. And one of the things in these litigations that plays out is there's usually a memo or two from somebody at a particular entity that demonstrates they at least bandied around considerations of what to do. Not surprisingly, sometimes financial considerations trump perhaps environmental concerns, but sometimes not. Sometimes they demonstrate that the manufacturer or the policyholder was doing, you know, all they could. And unfortunately, sometimes, you know, things happen beyond their control. But those are questions that because some courts and some jurisdictions do not find that sun has a temporal element, those then are the questions that then become involved. So over time, the fact that those questions were still being asked and that some jurisdictions determined that sun might not have meant what some insurers felt that it meant, in about the mid-80s, there was the creation of the absolute pollution exclusion or the total pollution exclusion or what we can call an exclusion that didn't have an exception for sudden and accidental 
releases. And, and so you would think that maybe that then would have slowed down litigation. But of course, that really hasn't been the case. And, and so what the focus then for environmental insurance coverage litigation, for litigants and for judges, first became, what is a pollutant? And so, so, John, have you ever been retained in a case in which you would say part of your expertise was to identify whether a substance was or was not a pollutant? Absolutely. And very often it's the first step to make an assessment as to what waste were generated and disposed in what manner and what were the effects of those waste materials. Are they toxic? Are they hazardous to human health or hazardous to ecological uh, settings is frequently the very first step to decide and determine whether there is an issue. Okay. So now we're here in Houston. And one of the things that I've heard now a couple times since moving to Texas is that Houston has something like 130 different types of people and types of food here. Have, have you heard that statistic? Uh, yeah, very diverse. Uh, well, uh, part uh, of the attraction of the city. Okay. Like All right. So, uh, you know, I don't know about you. I, I enjoy trying different food. You know, do you like Indian food? John? I, I've had almost all types of cuisine. Some I prefer more, but uh, Indian, uh, a close friend of mine that I, I worked at FMC with who moved to Houston and uh, we had dinner together and his, he was Indian descent. I suffered through it. I'll say I didn't, oh. I didn't terribly enjoy it. But okay. I, I was very willing to try it. All right. well, <laughs> that's fair enough. So would you consider the aroma of Indian food to be a pollutant? No, I wouldn't. I, it would be a, a flavor that I might look forward to were I of that heritage, right? Okay. And, uh, it's a well, perspective. And this, again, when I said insurance coverage sometimes turns into an Alice in Wonderland type of exercise is in Maxine Furs, the 11th Circuit, uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals out of Alabama, found that a person of ordinary intelligence would conclude that the aroma of curry from an Indian resident, from an Indian restaurant, excuse me, is a pollutant or contaminant. Now, the fact pattern of that situation was that there was a restaurant that was close to another business. I think they were selling furs, and they argued that their furs then retained, smelled, re retained and, and so therefore they brought suit. The insurer denied, saying, well, they're saying that the aroma is a pollutant, so if they're saying that, uh, or a contaminant or an irritant, then the pollution exclusion covers the aroma of Indian food. Now, because the law sometimes is impacted by culture, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't note that the Southern District of New York, probably not surprisingly, in uh, Greengrass versus Lumbermans, found that the smell of a delicatessen called Sturgeon King's Deli was not a pollutant. And in fact, the court, and I got a kick out of this, actually quoted from Zag the Zagat's Guide, mm -hmm. you know, that rates Restaurant. different restaurants. Right. right, right. So the guide itself said the smells alone are worth the price of admission. So therefore, it can't, it can't be, be right. noxious. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, but that, that shows you the type of questions. Now, we're down here in, uh, in Houston. So I imagine some of your uh, cases have involved uh, petroleum or, you know, oil. And have you been involved? in a situation in which oil is considered to be a pollutant. Yes. Okay. So, but what happens if, so if oil is a pollutant, 
and I am walking in front of your establishment, and there's some motor oil in the parking lot, and I slip and fall on that motor oil. Is that bodily injury that arises from a pollutant? Because oil is a pollutant. So these are the type of questions that wind up being litigated for purposes of the absolute pollution exclusion. The Illinois Supreme Court in Columns looked at those type of cases and said, that's absurd. And it was a, the Columns case involved carbon monoxide claims, I think from a malfunctioning boiler. And so they were inside a house. And the way Illinois tried to resolve some of these interpretations of uh, the pollution exclusion, the absolute pollution exclusion, was to limit it to what they call traditional environmental pollution. And so most jurisdictions, I think with the exception of one, the uh, Indiana, God bless them. Uh, the reason that, uh, John, we were talking uh, before the podcast, how my wife and I are looking uh, you know, for uh, a house here in Austin. And the reason that we can look at, you know, some nice houses is because I had the pleasure of being able to litigate in Indiana for years. Indiana is the only jurisdiction that does not enforce the absolute pollution exclusion, even in a traditional environmental case. What Indiana has done in a case called Flexstar is to essentially require insurers to enumerate the exact chemical that they deem to be a pollutant. Otherwise, it's considered ambiguous. What other courts have done, Illinois limiting it to traditional environmental pollution or say Washington in the GIA case has talked about an uh, efficient proximate cause rule so that there needs to be a nexus between the pollutant and some type of what you would consider to be pollution. Indiana is the lone outlier. Uh, I think the court itself in Flexstar recognizes that. They say, look, we, we recognize other courts. If it's a traditional environmental claim, is they're going to enforce the pollution exclusion, but we're going to go in our in our own Direction. So those are the types of issues brought on just by the pollution exclusion. There's other aspects, and I will have some other podcasts with some other attorneys, both policyholders and insurers, to talk about the other issues. I think the one thing to bring up is I said when I talked about it being in Alice in Wonderland that the timing of pollutants becomes important. And the reason that I say that is because your typical insurance coverage action involves a policyholder on one side and probably 20 insurers on the other side because what they've done is they've brought into court every insurer over multiple decades because if they were found responsible to clean up a facility in 2008, the policyholder then pivots. In the underlying litigation, they might hire John Loper to say, it wasn't us. We didn't have anything to do with this. But if ultimately they are found liable, they might hire an expert to say, we ran our plant from 1955 through 2004. And apparently, unbeknownst to us, every day during that time period, we had contaminants leave our facility, migrate to a third party's property, and therefore our insurers going all the way back to 1955 need to foot the bill. And so I'm sure you've experienced uh, those type of cases, uh, John, on the, on the coverage side where you might be retained by one party, but 
at the end of the day, you have multiple parties paying your bills, and that I'm sure raises can issues. Be challenging. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that can be challenging. You know, as, as a mediator, it's something that I experienced the same. Is because you have multiple parties, and you're hoping everybody is uh, going to uh, you know pay those bills. But that's a brief background of the type of issues that are involved in insurance coverage matters, and because the question about the timing or the nature of how some contaminant was spread when it first happened or how it happened is the type of thing that can be complicated and frankly can be difficult to ascertain with scientific certainty. And so you have to rely on experts, people with knowledge who might not have firsthand knowledge of what happened, but can take a look at data and determine how it was that we can go back in time and say, at least with enough certainty, when we think something happened. And so I think before we were talking a little bit, uh, you were mentioning a case in which it involved fingerprinting. What type of techniques are used by environmental scientists to try to determine, for example, the timing of when certain pollutants must have gone, say, into a contaminated plume? So there's an- analytical methods uh, that can be used to evaluate and identify what the chemicals are specifically of concern that would drive a cleanup and thus some insurance coverage issue to begin with. And those chemicals, in, in this case, the case we were talking about earlier, Steve, was petroleum products. And so they tanks leak, pipelines leak. Things collect in the ground, they impact groundwater, and so there's what's called the liquid non-aqueous phase liquid. And so it separates, they phase separate, gasoline floats on water, right? So when that happens, you can go collect a gasoline sample, and now you can start to look for, well, what additive package is in there? And it's all proprietary, but it's well-documented for the most part. You can go to the patent literature and understand what company uses which gasoline additives and where they're different. And you can start to make arguments that suggest, well, you know, this came from source A instead of source B because it has their additive package and not my additive package. As an example. Sure. Now, is it fair to say, I mean, that sounds pretty labor intensive. It's like the data isn't just readily available. It's something that has to, you have to both compare, I guess, the cocktail that, is what any particular entity was right. was using at the time with what's in the ground and frankly extrapolating of well if it was dumped 20 years ago what would it look like today right uh, what, what degradation has occurred over time because it will degrade over time uh, naturally and so and what distance has it traveled and what dilution has occurred as a result of that what impacts may have occurred to receptors along the way it is a challenge, a uh, complex business. Well, and one of the things about complex litigation is parties wind up employing folks like yourself, experts, and, and sometimes in some cases, multiple experts. So I'm sure you've been in cases in which you've had to coordinate what your opinion was and how it might impact other ex- experts in the case. And I think I said earlier that insurance coverage is state run so that each state has different rules about 
contract interpretation. The same can be said with respect to jurisdictional attitudes towards using experts and how much rope a particular expert is going to be provided. Do they have to absolutely be certain that they know the exact percentage of, you know, a substance that was in the environment at a time, or are they given, you know, some leeway? So I'd like to talk about a couple of cases that just illustrate, you know, this point. So one case that I have always known about is a Second Circuit case called B.F. Goodrich versus uh, Bedkowski. And, and the court was analyzing in the context of uh, whether certain entities were liable under CERCLA, whether they contributed to the contamination at a particular landfill. And the district court ultimately found that an expert's affidavit, uh, Dr. Brown, was lacking probative merit because it was not relying on direct evidence. And the Second Circuit disagreed and in doing so noted that its view of the probative worth of the affidavit, quote, dramatically differs from that of the district court. But in doing so, the court mentioned some things that I think is you know, somewhat interesting. Uh, the court says environmental science is ill-suited to lead a fact finder towards definitive answers dealing as it does in statistical probabilities. And I, f- I find that interesting because the court later then talked about that CERCLA, the purpose of CERCLA was to make sure we clean up the environment and so was taking, in its view, a less stringent view towards an environmental scientist than other experts. I can tell you most courts don't say that explicitly, even if I think subconsciously that impacts whether a court is or isn't going to allow you know, that type of, of evidence. But I'm just curious to your reaction to hearing that environmental science is ill-suited to lead towards definitive answers, dealing as it does in statistical probabilities. What's your reaction to that? I would argue strongly against that, Steve. I think there's always uncertainty in the world, but with a reasonable degree of certainty, you can start to draw conclusions based on facts, knowledge, science, experience, and start to shape and mold what you think has happened in a particular situation. So statistics are statistics, but... So it's, it's really a cumulative effect of, of both the science and, and your experience, and it's a, a multitude of disciplines that are involved between chemistry and biology for natural attenuation and civil engineering for transport routes and how things travel through the subsurface and how they once they get in the groundwater, how it travels after that. So you have hydrogeologists. But I certainly would strongly disagree that there's some kind of voodoo science. Well, the funny thing about it is the court was talking in the context of reversing. The trial court actually did not allow the affidavit. It was the court of appeals because they believed there to be an inherent uncertainty to this, actually used that as a reason to allow the affidavit to go for it, it. To me, it's one of, you know, it's an interesting viewpoint. I don't think it's one that uh, is universally accepted, but I, I do think uh, it does have some traction. But it does talk a little bit about statistical probability. And, and so I don't know whether you uh, enjoy a game of chance or not, John. Uh, I like statistics and okay. I like probabilities. So you know what? We're doing this in a slightly different 
place in the format of this podcast. If you're willing, I'd like to play a little bit of a game. And I know you know this game, okay? So you remember, as I'm old enough to remember, you know, when Monty Hall hosted Let's Make a Deal. Do you, you, you remember do Monty? Remember. Okay. So one of the games that they played was there's three doors. So behind two of the doors are goats. Behind one door is a car. And for purposes of this game, I'm telling you that the rule is I am going to ask you to choose a door. I will then reveal that behind one of the doors that you did not choose, I will reveal a goat. And then I'll have an important question for you. So are you ready to play? I am ready. You understand the rules? I do understand the rules. All right. So there are three doors. Door number one, door number two, or door number three. John Loper, which door do you choose? Come on down. Number three. Number three. All right. So you have door number three. And as I promised, I am showing you that there was, in fact, a goat, a nice-looking goat, but a goat nonetheless behind door number one. That's a disappointment because I like goats. Okay. All right. Well, you you still might have a chance to win one. (laughs) (laughs) So now you have the door that you selected, door number three. Door number two, we still don't know what's behind door number two. So John Loper, I am asking you, I'm giving you the opportunity because I'm such a nice guy. Do you want to switch from door number three to door number two? No. All right. Now, and I don't want this to take another hour, under the rules of the game and statistics, you have double the likelihood of winning under the rules of that if you switch. The fascinating thing about that is... Very smart people, whether they're technical like yourself or not, intuitively, let let me ask you this. Why didn't you switch? Well, the odds were one in three on the first set. It's one in two. My odds have improved. And I don't see that there's any difference conceptually. Right. And I picked three because I like the number three because it's an arbitrary pick, much like picking a lotto number is, right? So... I liked it, and I stuck with it. Well, and and I think what that shows is there's two things that what you did is something that like well over 95% of the people do. And it shows that sometimes probability is more difficult than people think. If you asked me, if I came into your office and you said, Steve, I'm working on this cleanup, and it involves a lot of you know calculations, and can you figure out how quickly this is going to infiltrate through the substrata? And I'm going to be like, I, I don't know which formula. So I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to walk into NASA and tell them how they should land the shuttle. Yet everybody, when they're faced with the Monty Hall problem, think that it's not anything complicated. So here's where you went awry a little bit. The rule was that I was going to show you a goat no matter what. So what you intuitively believed was you had a one in three chance at the beginning, but that it improved to one in two because there are only two possible doors. But it doesn't mean that there's only two outcomes. And the reason is the way you're looking at it would be true if I randomly revealed one of the unopened doors, and it could have had the car. 
But I'm telling you, I'm not going to reveal right, the right. car. So it's not random. So anymore. it's not random anymore. So if you think about it this way, is you had a one in three chance at the beginning. The real question is, did my doing what I told you I was going to do actually increase your odds? And even though people think that it did, it doesn't. One way to look at it is if I said that there was a million doors, but I told you the rule was I would then reveal 999,998 goats. And then I offered you to switch. Would you do it? (laughs) Most people, studies have shown that if there's more than like eight doors, start to realize that was a one in a million shot. I probably wasn't right, so I'm going to switch. But when it's fewer doors, it's not only a misunderstanding of the probability, it's also the psychology of not wanting to switch from your original choice. choice. And the reason I mention this is because in mediation and in settlement, it raises some issues of, Parties need to be open to understanding whether things are slightly different than how they're looking at it. And they also have to realize that some of their judgments might be psychological and not based on maybe what objectively is in their their best interest. So it's a game that I'm playing with everyone, and I I appreciate the the good nature of it. If you're interested in it, I can show you uh, Mr. Uh, Rosenhaus's book on it. Uh, it, it, It's it's a fascinating book, and we will dedicate a full episode of the podcast. It it will be Uh, added to my future reading list. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, so back to, you know, Betkowski, because Betkowski was talking about probability, and that that was my segue there. And I think we've already gotten your suggestion that you you disagreed uh, you know with the way that they talked about you know probability one of the other things that they did in in Batkowski is they felt it was particularly significant that the other side did not have an opposing expert and I think this creates a dilemma for practitioners in complex litigation cases because many parties want to prevail at summary judgment. And so they're arguing to the court that there is no genuine issue of material fact on an issue. The other side then puts an expert forward to say, we should survive summary judgment. And it puts the movement into a difficult position because if they go and play tit for tat, courts will sometimes look at that and say, look, if now we've got two different experts, I'll let a jury decide that. I'm, right. I'm not going to decide that issue. And and so to me, the portion of Betkowski that I disagree with is any significance to the fact that only one side had an expert. I was involved in a case in Indiana called the city of Evansville. The other side retained an expert to say that certain activities that seemingly were prophylactic, had some type of remedial impact. That was important because under Indiana law, we had already litigated in a case called Synergy that prophylactic measures done to comply with environmental statutes and regulations are not something that insurers have to pay for. Remediation of past contamination is. And so they had an expert who basically said, well, this is remediation. And the we had a decision. Do we have our own expert? And if maybe we were in front of the court in Betkowski, they would have allowed the case to go farther. But we were fortunate enough to win at summary judgment. It went to the Indiana Court of Appeals. And one of the questions, I think it's a clip on my website, talks about 
well, the other side has an expert and the other side's expert says that this is remedial. So how can we rule in your favor? And uh, thankfully, uh, I was able to convince the court that, well, just take a look at the facts. If you look at the facts, what really happened here was they're asking us to pay for improvements. Uh, Prophylactic and, issues. Right, right. Exactly. And, and, and so we were able to, to win on that. But a party that wasn't so fortunate, it's a relatively recent case out of the Seventh Circuit, an Illinois case called Varlin Corporation, talked about the pollution exclusion. And so here a policyholder put forward an expert a geologist, David Rogers, who took a look at two different sites. One was a chromium plating site for locomotive engines, and the other was a diesel refueling area. At the chromium plating site, there was a sump that he opined leaked and that he opined that the leaks must have been sudden and accidental. The court ultimately determined that it was speculative and it was not based on reliable principles and did not allow the affidavit to go forward because that was the only evidence that the policyholder presented the insurer was entitled to summary judgment. And so I think one of the things that, to me, that this points out, and I, I very much appreciated uh, all of your contributions here today, John, but what, what it points out for a mediator is that in complex cases, particularly in environmental insurance coverage cases, is that parties need to be aware that there is plenty of uncertainty in terms of whether their expert is going to be accepted, whether the expert is going to be even understood when talking about these complex issues by the finder of fact, whether it's a jury or a judge. And to the extent we are looking at some probability, my example of the game at least demonstrates that very intelligent people sometimes misunderstand even probability. And, and I say that as a mediator because what lawyers really do, ultimately, when they make recommendations to their clients about whether they should settle and for how much, is they try to assess what's the likelihood that they're going to win the case. But that sometimes you have to break that down. Is that impacted by what your expert is going to be able to succeed? Is it going to be impacted by your ability to cross-examine the other expert? And many, many other issues. Obviously, we're focused on experts today. But the point as a mediator is that when you're looking for a mediator and you're looking to settle, you want to be able to have somebody who's aware not only of the substance of the law, how it might play out, all the way to the end to a jury, how different parts of your case are perhaps easier to predict than others. And I would submit that, you know, Mr. Loper, you're a very qualified expert, but in any given case, you just never know whether the judge and jury are, are going to understand and accept your arguments. So well, you, you don't. I've, I've never been disqualified, Steve, but partially it's because I've been very selective on what matters uh, I've agreed to provide support to. Uh, one of the things I always enjoyed working with you and your firm was you always gave me the ability to reach my own opinions and to dive deep to do that and to do whatever I needed to do it. Whereas uh, there, there are other attorney situations, and I can see how the, the case you mentioned came up where you're kind of directed to, uh, well, here's the outcome, and you've got 40 hours to go figure out how to get from A to B, but you better opine and give me an affidavit that does B. And so it's a two-page expert report without much thought at all. Well, 
I won't take on that kind of work because uh, I think it's unethical personally, but but I know people that do, and they get boxed into that position. And I, I can see then why a judge would throw out, you know, the the expert ability to testify at that point. And and I, I agree. I, I think if you take a look at the cases, and obviously I I only took a couple of examples. There's you know hundreds, thousands of cases all across the country that have to look at whether they're going to permit an expert. I think for practitioners, the lesson you know needs to be that. The conclusion an expert comes up with, if it coincidentally is the magic words that you need to survive summary judgment or prevail in a case, that doesn't per se make it a bad opinion, but I think it draws some scrutiny. I think eyebrows are raised when experts try to come in and tell the court, here are magic words. In my case, in the city of Evansville, it was whether a particular thing that I was arguing to a court was not remedial was in fact remedial. And in the case in Varlin, it was, we're not really sure what happened, but we know it happened suddenly. That's the type of, I think, expert opinions that are on the weakest threads and are likely to be barred. But you, as a practitioner, you might have a great argument that a court should disregard, but you never know. And that creates some uncertainty. And I think my argument as a, now as I transition to a, a mediator is, those are the type of issues that you need to be going into with an open mind when you talk settlement and recognize that even while you think your mediator is, excuse me, your expert, his report, his opinions are based on, on sound science, the other side isn't, you never know how that's going to play out. So it's always worth, I think, when you're investing, I, I'm not going to put you on the spot here, but let's just say, John, it's not like uh, the fees to develop a well-reasoned opinion in which you're allowed to review all of the information. That becomes expensive. It's a large expense, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and you don't do it lightly unless you believe, as you said, there's a higher probability that you need to go down that road to be successful. But if you're not sure and there's an opportunity to mediate and come to some mutual agreement on a reasonable outcome that both parties can agree to, it's a cost you wouldn't have to incur. Well, absolutely. So I think, you know, with that, we ended the first episode with Judge Hull talking about the opportunity that mediation presents to avoid some of the expense and pain of litigation. Here, we're focusing a lot on the expense involved in preparing a complex case, which involves experts. And even after taking that expense, noting the uncertainty involved in that. And that, I think the uncertainty is something a good mediator can highlight to both sides to hopefully push them towards the center and find something that's mutually acceptable. So anyhow, for, for John Loper, this is Steve Showolf. Uh, thank you very much uh, for listening. We're going to close the door for today, but we'll keep it open just a little bit. This has been Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. Thank you very much and take care. Thank you, Steve. This closes the door on Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. Please join us next time where Steve will discuss with a new guest topics related to mediation, negotiation, and resolution. Thank you for listening.